Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Other Castle. The Other Castle. I'm Andrea. And my name is Tom. And we host a video game podcast where we talk about the plot, lore, and more behind all your favorite games. That includes development, creation, performing, marketing sometimes, and, of course, everything that actually happens in the game. So you can basically say you played it. You, you get it. You know what's going on. Yeah, so if this is your first time, thank you for joining us. If you're rejoining us from previous episodes, thank you for coming back. And this week, we are doing Bioshock. Bioshock. Haven't you guys done a Bioshock episode? Well, yes, we technically did a Bioshock episode before. It was very early in our series, when we didn't quite have the same process. We didn't quite have the same format to the show. So we wanted to update it and give us a better description of Bioshock than we provided the first time. Kind of like a remake? Just like a remake, as this game has been remade quite a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> I think they've been able to lean on remastering, though, right? Because they've actually kept all the files on like other games where they're like, fuck it, ground up, figure it out. Correct. Yeah, Bioshock was made on Unreal Engine 2 originally, and even the remasters are still Unreal Engine 2.5, just like with updated skins and stuff like that. Very cool. I think we're on Unreal 6 now, right? 5 or 6? 5. I think it's Unreal 5 that we're out. Gotcha. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, they're always innovating with that shit. Yeah. (laughs) Before we get started, we do want to welcome a couple of our new Patreon members. Oh, fun! So we've got Molly Mock Shepard. Molly. And we have Krisha as well. Hi, Krisha. And so thank you so much for joining us and for joining the Patreon. At the end of the episode, we're actually going to make a big announcement about our Patreon, so stick around after that. Yeah, if you've ever been curious about what's behind the wall, it's bonus episodes, it's historical episodes, it's additional content, lots of fun stuff, but yeah, just stay tuned. Yeah, if you want to check us out further, we have theothercastlepodcast.com. That's theothercastlepodcast.com. And yeah, and we're also available wherever you listen to podcasts, so go ahead and subscribe to make sure that you are ready, because at the end of the episode, we're also going to announce when Season 7 is coming back. It's coming back! Oh, I've been working so hard. Constantly. (laughs) Both of us were playing our games today. Yeah, for hours. Yeah. (laughs) I think I got a good four hours in, and I was like, I think I have to put this down. I'm losing my mind. Yeah, I got a solid two and a half in, too. It gets a little brutal, especially with the pressure to be able to understand what's happening. Instead of just going pew pew. Yeah, right? Ugh, it's rough. So rough. Wah, wah, wah. Anyway, I am very grateful to be here. I'm very grateful for our new Patreon friends, and I'm excited to talk about how Patreon is changing for us. Yes, the same. But anyway, we're here to talk about Bioshock, so let's get started. Yeah. Our story begins in 1994 at a small gaming studio making a game called System Shock. Ooh. It was a first-person shooter-style action game taking place in a cyberpunk world, and it was available on PC, and it sold moderately well when it was released. And this allowed for the team who built the game to branch off into their own group called Irrational Games. This is exciting. I know where this is going. (laughs) Well, from there, they produced a sequel, System Shock 2, released in 1999, which garnered rave reviews and zero sales. Oh, no. (laughs) So critics loved it. So this is an amazing game. And everyone went great and then just moved on with their lives. No one bought it. Nobody played System Shock 2 except for like those kinds of people who play like literally everything that comes out. Right. Reviewers. And for those lucky few, they always felt they had experienced something new, fresh and fun. Just nobody else cared. Was it just no marketing? Like, I mean, if it's a sequel... It's part of a franchise, like the story's going somewhere, presumably. I don't, I haven't played them, admittedly, but, oh, am I part of the problem? (laughs) 
you know, it was probably marketing, definitely. And I just think the people that did play it weren't being loud enough about it. Well, it was, you said this was the 90s, right? Yeah, of course. It's hard. Yeah, it's hard. The internet wasn't as strong as it is today. So most of this team went on to produce a moderately successful tactical assault first-person shooter series called SWAT. SWAT. So it's based off the SWAT team and, you know, the police forces. And it was built in Unreal Engine 2.5, which was brand new at the time. And the SWAT series saw production team members come and go, which allowed for a few people to rise to the top. Namely writer Ken Levine. Oh, okay, cool. So they had finished SWAT 4, which was actually the ninth in the series. Holy shit, they were banging those out. They really were. I thought you were going to be like, and they made like three. No, no. You're, you're talking about like, we're at nine. Yeah, this was their money series. This was what brought their paychecks in, basically. Oh, that's so funny. And they were just really tired of making tactical shooters. Their last pitch for a SWAT 5 had gone off the deep end as they wanted to make a game where SWAT teams face off against zombies and werewolves. Hell yeah. They're like, fuck it. They're going to the monster mash now. Who gives a shit? Yeah, and since zombie games hadn't gained popularity yet, this was universally rejected by everyone they pitched it to. They were just ahead of their time. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, Ken Levine was very much like, just so you know, this was before zombie games. Yeah. <laughs> so they started pitching out original ideas to developers. One of the ideas they had was a game Andrea is going to be furious they didn't go on to create. Oh, wait, really? So you would be playing as a cult deprogrammer. <gasps> that is literally my... that. That's all I've ever wanted. <laughs> I'm not smart enough to get into the programs where you learn how to do this kind of shit. And I probably don't have the work ethic, too, if I'm being 100. But this world fascinates me so much. Holy shit. Honestly, it seems like a lot of people that go into cult deprogramming were former cult members themselves. Ah. Well, anyway, in this game, your job was going to be to sneak into cults by joining them. Oh, shit. And then kidnap members in order for you to <gasps> deprogram them. That's so fucking sick. I'm so upset this doesn't exist. Yeah, Ken loved the idea that from one viewpoint, you're saving people. And from another, you're taking away their right to religious freedom. Oh my, oh God. Yeah, so that was a little bit too high concept and never really got off the ground. Also, I never thought about the morality of that one. Okay, cool. Right? Oh, I'm struggling. Okay, anyway. That's so fucking cool. And wouldn't you love the team that did like L.A. Noir to come back and do that so you Ooh. can see the deep programming happen live time in their eyes and shit? That would be incredible. I There's my pitch there. If, if Ken can't pick it up and take it, there's a team right there that would kill this shit. It's just disappeared, you know? But you know what? The team from F-Stop that went on to make Portal 2, there is like an F-Stop-like game coming out now. So maybe somebody will grab that idea one day. Yeah. Well, they had a few other ideas they were tossing around, and one was about an underwater city set in a time period in the not-too-distant past. This was the game they felt the most passion for, as it would incorporate their favorite innovations from System Shock 2 and combine it with their skills in Unreal Engine 2.5, calling the game Bioshock. No, we have a drinking game on this show. <laughs> <laughs> you are just joining us when... In the same vein of The Simpsons did it, Bioshock is so iconic for inspiring so much of modern gaming that when you see that in another game, you take a Bioshot. 
Yes. I have not played the game. <laughs> it's I probably am, dangerous. I am just aware of it. <laughs> I do not endorse this game. I think that's ridiculous. And if you need a binge drink, just do it. Like, who gives a shit about, like, gamifying your party? That's another thing. But I'm not going to call out Bioshocks in this one. <laughs> yeah, when you say you haven't played this game, you mean the Bioshock game. You've played Bioshock. Oh, yes. Excuse me. I have played the shit out of Bioshock. I was talking about our in-world drinking game that I do not endorse. Yeah, Bioshock was one of your big like introductions into first-person shooters, wasn't it? Oh, I discovered the goblin inside of me the day <laughs> I played Bioshock. Do you remember the day I played Bioshock for the first time? I don't really because I went to work early in the morning <laughs> and you sat down saying, I'm going to check out Bioshock. Yeah. And then I came home and you had beaten the game. <laughs> you came home right at the very climax, like the very last battle. And I had a blanket over my head. The couch was covered in like fucking snacks, snacks, wrappers <laughs> and shit. And you were like, hi, are you okay? And I said, no, <laughs> I live in rapture now. And you went, you we're turning on the lights. There's something wrong. You need to eat a vegetable for the love of fuck. And I was like, ah. <laughs> Bioshock is a perfect game and playing it all in one sitting for the first time I consumed it was an excellent choice. Oh yeah. And for me, kind of the same thing was that I didn't really care. It was a new franchise when it came out. So I ignored it entirely. Yeah. And I had a friend who I very much trusted who said, give this one a try. And Oh, I did the same thing. I got lost. <laughs> I was at his house for the weekend anyway. And I just sat there and I played that thing to completion. That's so fucking good. Such a fantastic experience. Anyway, so they pitched Bioshock to investors and publishers all over the world, constantly referring to it as the spiritual successor to System Shock 2. And the publisher would be like, cool. How well did System Shock 2 do? Oh, no. And that was the end of the conversation. Even though System Shock 2 had great reviews, still nobody fucking played it. And the reviews were getting them meetings, but their sales were getting them rejections. Oh, God. So Ken Levine had to think outside the box on this one. Most games get a publisher, they build a full game, and then they start doing marketing. Ken decided to reverse the process and start with the marketing, then worry about the rest later. Okay. So he called up a journalist at GameSpot that had written a really great review for System Shock 2 and invited him to see their demo of an extremely early version of Bioshock. And it was just an atmosphere demo with a single hallway that connected like three rooms. And there's a lot in this demo that made it into the full game and a lot that really didn't. Okay. But regardless, the journalist was really excited by what he saw. Very cool. So the day after the GameSpot article was released, publishers started calling off the hook. <laughs> Hell yeah, Ken. He hacked the fucking system. He did entirely. And it works because it's a brand new franchise. Like, you don't have to check in with anyone. You built it. It's fine. Yeah, and it ultimately landed them at 2K. Ooh, hell yeah. So with this influx of money, they got a larger team. And the part of the team they really built out was the art department, as the game was going to need a ton of new assets and characters. Now, the talent they brought on was so insanely good. They realized that for the first time in their careers, they can tell a story through the environment as much as they could through the gameplay or cutscenes. So the environmental storytelling became that center focus of how they were developing the game. Yeah, well, it wasn't really something they'd ever considered before because nobody had done it yet. 
Okay. And then Ken Levine saw a 27-year-old doctor pick up a gravity gun, <laughs> changing video game history. <laughs> really, Half-Life impacted the development of Bioshock? Oh, very much so. As much as Bioshock is inspiration to everything else, Half-Life <laughs> 2 and Half-Life 1 were entire inspirations for Bioshock. Oh, hell yeah. One of the big things being the things that they developed for the gravity gun that had never been done before, and they incorporated that into telekinesis in this game. I can see it, yeah, catching things midair and throwing them back. Absolutely. Oh, shit, that's cool. So they knew they had the right setting and gameplay with the underwater world, which they called Rapture. That's where I live. That's my home. <laughs> that's your new home. My address is down there. The idea behind the setting of Rapture came from a desire to create an isolated location like they had done in System Shock. For example, if you're playing like a Spider-Man game and it's set in New York, why can't you go over to New Jersey? You can't swing that far. Ken Levine hated artificial limitations and settings. He wanted real limitations, but ones that he as the creator gets to control and manipulate. So just organic endings to maps and things like that instead of just saying, nah, you can't do that. Yeah, like system shocks were taking place inside a spaceship. Very cool. Setting it underwater also just made it easier on them for environmental graphics. So looking out a window, it makes sense that you can't see very far when underwater, as opposed to a big open world where you'd have to build out like trees, mountains, or cityscapes. Clever. I love that. Underwater, you can just have a few reusable assets like different breeds of seaweed and have the water become murky in the distance. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Oh, that's so fucking smart. And then all the buildings you see outside the windows are just rearrangements of the same building skins really just simplified the process for them. I love this work smarter, not harder shit they're doing. I'm sure they worked very hard. Excuse me. I don't want to disparage anyone, but it's very clever how they're making use of their time and labor. I agree. No, they are brilliant in their use of it. And you don't hear any rumors of crunch culture in this situation either. Oh, I love that. Not to say it doesn't exist. Just right. to say no one talked. <laughs> <laughs> it did. <laughs> I mean, back then it was so common. They just didn't think to talk about it. too. Yeah. They're like, no, that's regular. Well, when it came to creating the man that would build Rapture, Ken Levine turned to now-controversial author Ayn Rand. Oh, we all know where he turned for this one. So she's often referred to as the mother of libertarianism. Ayn Rand wrote several novels about great and powerful people who ignore societal norms, forge their own paths, and say fuck you to governments and society at large. And books like The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged are considered pillars of the libertarian ideology. And honestly, she was just kind of repackaging Citizen Kane over and over again. Oh. But Ken Levine was a fan of Ayn Rand's storytelling ability. And he had no idea at the time that there were people forming entire political ideologies and basing their whole personality on these books. Oh, God. He just thought, these characters are fucking crazy. I should make a bad guy like one of them. <laughs> he did not take the right message out of that at all. Not the one that she wanted him to. He was just like, you guys are fucking nuts. <laughs> when Ken Levine proposed the Ayn Rand idea, everyone in the room was like, who the fuck reads Ayn Rand? 19-year-olds. <laughs> oh my god, does my boss like Ayn Rand? <laughs> and again, Ken didn't know it was like a political hot button, so he just started describing what he envisioned. Oh, I appreciate kind of the parallel between him and the future creator not really grasping the right message out of Anne Ryan, which is, I feel like you read it, you know, when you're young and you're like, burn down the system, let's yeah. fucking play with society. Like you're into philosophy and stuff. And then 
you know, by the time your spirit goes out in your early 20s, you're like, yeah, who gives a shit? <laughs> Entirely, right? You start to learn. You're like, oh, it's not that simple, is it? Yeah, we're kind of stuck. Well, as he described, the team got behind it. And they all started developing little side stories and characters to flesh out the whole world. And they basically focused their feelings about Ayn Rand's ideologies and built characters and stories fueled by their hatred. Hmm. And they especially loved the idea of taking her philosophies and showing the true horror of what would actually happen. Yeah, here's what it looks like in practice, dipshit. The biggest evolution they were pushing for in gaming, though, was adding RPG elements to a first-person shooter. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, that's upgrading your weapons. That is customizing oh. the way you can play because you limit in terms of how much you can customize it mm -hmm. to the point where you really do have to focus on taking it a certain direction. Gotcha. So strategery. Yeah. Uh, a game that today that you would compare that to is Cyberpunk 2077. Oh, okay. Gotcha. That makes sense. That is a game that went full first-person shooter RPG. And that seems very common today. A lot of games are doing that, but Bioshock was the first one to ever do that. Right. This was a different time. And, like, the customizations weren't the only things that they borrowed from role-playing games. And in any classic RPG, you also have a shopkeeper. <laughs> a major issue that Ken Levine had in the past with video games, and particularly NPCs like shopkeepers is that they are basically demigods and immortals. <laughs> they cannot be killed. Yeah. They cannot be slain. You can do anything you want to them and nothing happens. Just like in Red Dead, how if you shoot them through the arm, they'll come to work with like their arm in a sling the next day and shit. Like it is still prevalent today, yeah. So they brought an element that was present in System Shock 2, which was vending machines to fill the role. Oh, clever. Yeah, that makes sense. And the most notable one from Bioshock being... The Circus of Values. I can hear that in my head. It just rang out. You can hear the laugh. Come back when you've got some money, buddy. I still say that because it takes permanent space in my brain. Because you heard it so many times playing this game. So many times, though. Because I was always so broke. Yeah. They reviewed a bunch of royalty-free images from the 1940s and picked a little clown head to be the mascot. Oh, just like out of a box of free assets. That's cool. Yeah. And the idea was to make the clown a sarcastic asshole. <laughs> Honestly, mission accomplished. They fucking nailed that. And that made Ken Levine himself jump at the chance to voice it. Oh, good for him. I didn't know he was the voice of the fucking clown. Yeah, he plays the voice of the clown of the Circus of Values. Yeah. That's so cool. Good for him. Well, he was a bit too much of an asshole. And players kept shooting the machine after interacting with it. <laughs> And he was kind of back to the same problem that he had with shops in the first place. So they cut most of the lines and left it with just like the funniest ones. <laughs> That's really funny. And as a creator, it must be so difficult for people to be like, I fucking hate this character so much. Bullets are rare in this world. and I'm still going to waste them killing this thing. And he's like, oh, shit. Yeah, he wasn't thinking of the fact that the programmers were all people that were his employees. So they're just like, oh, that's my boss. I'm going to shoot it. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and... 10 out of 10, that's fucking hysterical, so I fully back that. Well, anyway, so there's a lot of other, like, really fun and interesting things that happened during the production of this game, but they're all about decisions they made to, like, help tell the story. So I'm going to continue sprinkling these throughout, like, the rest of the game itself. Oh, cool. Ultimately, Bioshock released August 24th, 2007, on PC and Xbox 360, to critical acclaim, and in true System Shock 2 fashion... Oh, no! Middling sales. No! It wasn't until October 17th, 2008, when it released on PS3, did it really start to make waves. 
PlayStation came in clutch for them. It did, because the people who played it on 360 were saying great things, but the Xbox 360 was a really multiplayer-focused system. Mm. So, like, the Call of Duties were really popular on there, the multiplayers on Halo. They weren't a big, like, single-player campaign system. People who like those kinds of games tended to flock to PlayStation. And so, once it released on PlayStation, it really made a splash. That makes a lot of sense. Now, regardless of platform... It needed word of mouth to spread as it was an original IP and came from a relatively unknown group. And that's how I ended up playing. It was somebody had to vouch for it. Right. I mean, you vouched for it for me. Yeah. And now I live there. And figures are a bit murky, having been remade and ported to like a dozen or so platforms. But it has sold over 40 million copies since its release. Holy shit. It spawned two sequels and a fourth game reportedly on the way. Allegedly. We've been hearing about that for a while. I'll believe it when I see it. Well, speaking of hearing about it for a while, after a dozen failed attempts, it's finally getting an adaptation on Netflix. Oh, that's really happening. I feel like I've seen that, but the photoshopped like thumbnails always look really hokey. So I'm like, I'll believe it when I see it. It does look hokey as hell, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, hopefully it does happen. Okay, but that's exciting. I mean, Netflix is really fucking swinging for it. I think they're probably in a positive position because of how well Witcher is doing. Witcher, and I would say The Last of Us as well, even though it's a different, like, network. Yeah, but rising tides, all boats, that kind of thing. Fully feel you. Well, would you kindly come along as we dive into Rapture (laughs) for a game so groundbreaking and influential, we did have to develop the Bioshock to call out every time another game references it. (laughs) Here we go, Goombas. This is Bioshock. The year is 1960, and we're flying over the mid-Atlantic on a commercial plane, smoking a cigarette because you could do that back then. That's insane to me. Here we have the only voiceover we will get from our star and protagonist, Jack. You pull out your wallet and look at a photo of yourself and your parents while saying that they always told you that you were special and destined for greatness. Like pretty much any decent parent does. (laughs) My parents are like, you're mid. You put the picture and wallet away and pull out a gift-wrapped package, complete with a big red bow, and a note from mom and dad that requests you not open until with the date itself being covered by the big red bow. As you look at the bow, you say to yourself that your parents were right about you being destined for greatness. The scene fades to black as you take another puff of your cigarette, and you can hear the sounds of people screaming and the roar of the plane's engines as a voice says, Altitude, pull up, pull up. You hear the sound of the plane crash into the ocean below, as the title screen appears and ominously goes from a shiny, fancy logo to a mossy, rusted, and decrepit one. Now, this was the last scene that was produced for the game. Really? Yes. On a day Ken Levine calls the most depressing day of the process. What the fuck? The day they made the title card? No, it was the day they presented their first full demo of the first level of Bioshock, and the testers fucking hated it. Oh, shit. The game originally started after the plane crash. And this scene wasn't there. After the focus test, they realized the big complaint was that the player didn't understand their role in all of this. Mm. So Ken wrote a quick script and had one of the programmers hop in the booth to record a few lines. And with the last couple dollars they had left, they made this scene and every tester review after that was golden. Holy shit. I mean, I can't imagine the game without this context. Right? Frankly. Could you imagine just waking up, floating in the middle of the ocean, and being like, go? Yeah. 
it would be so confusing as hell. But just having that little bit of scene right there was enough to like make it okay for people. And it tells you a lot of things. Like atmospherically, it tells you it's the 60s because you can smoke in a fucking plane. <laughs> right. And <laughs> so you get that immediate context. And you get the context that this is an adult man. You know, this is an adult man with a family. He's presumably American. It feels like a very American kind of Pan Am Airlines situation. Like, okay, we have some context here now. Mm-hmm. And without that, what you're just... I'm a monster underwater. That's not fucking anything. Yeah, you're just a dude floating in the ocean. Yeah. So you wake up underwater, outside of the plane, and watching as people's belongings float past you, like a woman's purse, along with what I think is the heart of the ocean from Titanic. Oh, shit. She did drop it in the ocean at the end. She did, yeah. And you surface as parts of the plane sink past you, and you come out of the water surrounded by a burning ring of fire. And you can try to swim around it, but the flames, they grow higher. They tend to. And if you touch it, it'll burn, burn, burn. Anyway, looking around, you can see a lighthouse on an island conveniently nearby and swim towards it. There's always a lighthouse. The plane sinks around you, and you see the flames guide you towards the stairs of the giant Art Deco-style lighthouse. He seems very unnerved that no one else has survived. Right, he is the only survivor of this fucking crash. There is not a body to be seen. Right. Now, according to Architectural Digest, Art Deco is short for Arts Decoratifs and is characterized by rich colors, bold geometry, and decadent detailed work. Lots of metal, like bronze or chrome. You'll see a lot of stucco, stained glass, and carved human figures worked into like flat surfaces, such as walls, and especially doors. It's just extra as hell. Really big and bombastic, yeah, a lot of sharp lines. And they chose Art Deco as the style based on a visit that Ken Levine and his wife took to New York City. They went to Rockefeller Center and looked around, seeing that this was the only section in New York City where every single building looked exactly the same. And as he looked around, he turned to his wife and he goes, oh my god, this is Rapture. Oh. We need to make Rapture look like this. Can you imagine some guy in front of 30 Rock just going, this is Rapture? He looked fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, because when you hear the Rapture, you think of those guys holding up signs like, the end is near. Yeah. <laughs> also, I love that they were like, let's go see if we can see Al Roker. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to expense this as a work job. Well, he and his wife bought a bunch of disposable cameras because this was before you had cameras on your phones. Hmm. And they photographed everything they could from, like, doorknobs to the railings. Oh, fascinating. So they had to develop a whole stack of fucking Kodak disposables for him to bring back to work and be like, I found Rapture. Yeah, and he took that stack of disposable pictures and he gave it to the art department. And he said, there, that's the inspiration. Go. I'll see you in a couple years. Oh, my God. How eccentric is Ken Levine? He's a li- I don't want to say eccentric, and I don't want to say egotistical, but he knows how smart he is. Okay. That's about what I'll say about it. I don't think... He doesn't seem to be an asshole boss. Yeah. He seems to be a pretty fair boss, but I think at the end of the day, he trusted the team. That's important in a leader. I've never heard anything bad or disparaging about Ken Levine or his teams. Right. So I'd like to hold on to that thought that he's a good person. I would too. I would I would assume the best from him. Yeah, but he's a little eccentric. Like, this is fun energy for him to drop a stack of a fat-ass bunch of disposable fucking camera photos and be like, I figured it out. I mean, if you think about it, his inspiration being like the Half-Life team, Gabe Newell's kind of known for doing the same kind of stuff, a little bit eccentric like that. So that might have been his mentor. Not mentored necessarily directly, but kind of who he looked up to. I gotcha. Anyway, so you open a large, ornate bronze door into the lighthouse, and the interior lights turn on. 
A 30-foot bronze statue of a man's bust is found inside the lighthouse, towering over you holding a banner that says, No gods or kings, only man. Hell yeah. A plaque under it says the man is named Andrew Ryan, along with another quote that says, In what country is there a place for people like me? Exploring some, you find stairs that take you to a basement in the lighthouse. At the bottom, you find a circular submarine-like vessel called a bathysphere. Inside, it looks like a gondola with red velvet seats, clearly to keep a person comfy while riding. I love that. Already so luxurious. Yeah, because the outside's all bronze, so yeah, it looks really great. There's a lever inside the bathysphere, and when you pull it, the door shuts behind you, and the bathysphere begins to descend into the water below. The door has a gigantic viewing window, and you can see the bathysphere descending down and beyond the building of the lighthouse into the open water. Just as you enter the open water, a screen pops up over the viewing window, and an image gets projected onto said screen. It's an ad for something called the Incinerate Plasmid, and it has some old-timey orchestral music playing softly <laughs> before we hear a voiceover from Andrew Ryan himself. The ad changes to an image of Andrew sitting in a chair smoking a pipe. In his address, he asks the question, Is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow? This is accompanied by an image of a farmer sweating his balls off in the hot sun. An image of an eagle attacking the farmer is next shown, saying, The government thinks the poor deserve it. I love the very heavy-handedness of all the assets. It's so good. The next image is of a giant glowing hand descending from the sky towards the farmer, and Andrew saying that the Vatican thinks it belongs to God. Finally, an image of a hammer and sickle appears over the farmer, and he says, that Moscow says, it belongs to everyone. The music ramps up as the image of Andrew reappears. He says that he chose to reject those ideals, and instead chose something different, something impossible. He chose rapture. And as he says this, the music swells into a crescendo, the slideshow concludes, and the screen retracts, showing us once again the window to the outside. The bathysphere comes up over a hill, and we see a massive underwater city as a giant squid swims overhead. In the distance, there's fish and other sea life swimming in between the buildings. The bathysphere takes us on an exterior tour of the city, and we see covered bridges spanning gaps between buildings, along with what can only be described as people in large diving suits, doing occasional repairs on some of their bridges. We even see a giant sperm whale swimming between the buildings. <laughs> All the while, Andrew Ryan is telling us that Rapture is a city free of regulation. So anyone from artists to scientists can take their visions to the furthest extent because nobody's going to stop them from doing so. Anyone can succeed in Rapture as long as you're willing to put in the work. Andrew's voice goes away and we can hear two people on a radio talking to each other. One is clearly in charge of the other, and he says that there was a plane crash on the surface, and someone is coming down in a bathysphere. He tells the other guy to go check it out and see who it is. Your bathysphere enters a docking bay and goes inside a building and begins to rise up like an elevator. The one in charge says to the other guy to hurry before either security or something called a splicer gets there first. You rise up out of the water, and the room you're in is pitch black, and your door is still shut. The man that was sent to get you is just outside the bathysphere in the darkness, and he's pleading with someone else that you can't see. 
The lights flicker, and you can just make out another person there. A woman with two glowing hooks for hands, approaching the stranger. The woman lunges forward and pins the man to the bathysphere, lifting him high up. She then swipes through the man's belly, spilling his guts on the floor. She peers into the bathysphere at you and asks, Is it someone new? And she leaps onto the roof of the bathysphere, and you can hear her hacking away at the metal exterior. Sparks can be seen inside the bathysphere as she tears through the layers of metal. But it's too strong, and she gives up and runs away. Ugh, it's such a good opening. I'm fully just like popcorn over here. Fuck. When you hit the water and see the whale, oh, it's the wildest moment in gaming. It's so crazy. And when you see Rapture for the first time, it takes your breath away. Like what I would give to play this game for the first time, not knowing anything. Right. It's such a moment and it's such a complete feeling of just awe when you yeah. see it. Oh, entirely. Well, the voice of the first man, the one clearly in charge, comes over an intercom. And he asks you to kindly pick up the shortwave radio in the corner of the bathysphere. Once you have the radio, a man with a thick Irish accent introduces himself as Atlas, a citizen of Rapture. He says he's amazed that you survived the plane crash, and he promises to help you get back up topside. He helps you draw out the woman with the hooks for hands, referring to her as a splicer. You're weaponless, but Atlas has a flying drone with a machine gun on it he uses to chase her off. Atlas says you need a weapon and asks you to find a crowbar or something. <laughs> well, the crowbar is busy helping another first-person shooter hero. I can appreciate that we all share one brain cell when it comes to melee weapons. <laughs> and just saying, well, Gordon Freeman did it with a crowbar, so it's going to be a crowbar. Like, the fact that the crowbar has become this map I wasn't going to say meme or character. It's a mascot of melee. Right. You know, of itself. Fucking brilliant. I love it in every single instance. Well, instead of a crowbar, you get Bioshock's now iconic weapon, the pipe wrench. Hell yeah. Which, we actually watched the trailer before recording this episode just to like, see how they advertise it the first time. And in that trailer, it's actually from the point of view of a splicer, but he gets attacked and he had the wrench with him. And it's kind of the origin story of what happened to the wrench. And it gets dropped in exactly where you find it, right? Yeah, you find it in the exact spot that he ended up dropping it in the trailer, which is fantastic. Can you imagine if they did that shit today? Like the fanfare right. of oh. all of that? Just the little Easter eggs. But as we'll find out later, like they took a lot of care when it came to most dead bodies you find. <laughs> I just really like the sentiment of they took a lot of care of the dead bodies you find. <laughs> right. You walk through a hallway and see a sign that says plasmids with a big hand pointing up some stairs. You get to the top and there's an old fashioned like gas pump or vending looking machine. And it's flanked by two giant pink dolls of little girls. It's called a gatherer's garden. And there's a big crystal decanter full of a red liquid inside. Naturally, you feel a big ass syringe full of the red liquid and inject it straight into your veins. Oh my God. You know, as you do. And now it's been a while since I played this. Is this prompted by Atlas? Or are you just like, ooh, mystery liquid? Oh, he tells you to at least take it, but I don't remember him saying inject it into your veins. Do it intravenously. Yeah. <laughs> like people who do heroin. That's and like the balls you have to have to like actually hit a vein. It's dark in there. Yeah. First of all, you are not a medically trained professional to our knowledge. <laughs> Well, he tells you that if you're going to make it out of here, you're going to need the plasmids. So yeah. he does tell you to take it. I just don't remember him saying inject it directly into your veins. Like, what if it worked under your tongue? <laughs> right? 
Well, it's funny because after this, you do just drink them. Oh, this is the only one you shoot up into your body? Yeah. I mean, you have to use... We'll talk about that part later, but there's okay. a lot of intravenous drug use in this. But it's just all for plasmids. I hate vein stuff. Yeah. It's so gross. I've had some bad experiences, though. I got a vein IV thing once and I passed out because I didn't hit in the right spot. Oof. Yeah, that That's was rough. terrible. So now I'm a little extra cautious. So I like really hate vein stuff. I think it's so gross. I get that. Vein trauma <sighs> sucks. Well, your vision starts to go blurry and your hands start to contort and twist. Atlas tells you not to worry. Your genetic code is just being rewritten. Be casual, my guy. Yeah, nothing to worry about. <laughs> you go to a balcony and lean over it like you're going to puke. But instead of vomiting, you fall over the balcony to the floor and get knocked out. Oh, you did that to yourself. That sucks. You awaken on the ground just barely with the screen like still blurry. As you lay there, two splicers stand over you, saying it looks like you just popped your cherry. Ew. And that you're probably full of something called Adam that they want to take from you. A loud, guttural, and echoing growl could be heard. And the splicers say it's not worth fighting off a big daddy, and that you'll be just as dead either way. They run off, and you see a big, hulking something with a drill for one hand in an oversized diving suit, complete with a round helmet that has a half-dozen yellow glowing portholes. It makes the growl sound you heard before, only this time much closer. A little girl that looks like she's died a long time ago <laughs> and has glowing yellow eyes holding a foot and a half long hypodermic needle bends down saying in an ethereal voice that your stomach is glowing. But she says you're still breathing and that they have to wait for you to become an angel before they can do anything to you. Ugh. So the little girl and the hulking beast continue on their walk. It's all right. She knows you'll be an angel soon. Oh my god. You wake up, and now, thanks to the plasmid you injected in your arm, you can shoot lightning from your hand. Hell yeah, totally worth it. <laughs> I would fully do that. Oh, I don't think right? anyone wouldn't, because that's fucking cool as shit. Yeah, once you see other people surviving it, you're like, okay, if it sucks for a little bit, but I get lightning afterwards, right? might be worth it. Mm -hmm. I love everything about this. And you use your lightning to open a security door and venture further into Rapture. And Rapture is mostly windows, because honestly, if you're going to be living underwater, you're going to want to see that. Oh, no, that's the whole point. You go there for the view. Yeah. While going through a glass tunnel, the tail end of your airplane comes falling from above. <gasps> oh, right, the airplane. Right, slamming through the tunnel you're in, flooding it instantly. And you make your way to an airlock and into a dry section of the city. You manage to make it to an elevator, and as you ascend... Atlas tells you that his wife Moira and son Patrick are in a part of the city called Neptune's Bounty. Those are the most Irish names you could have given them. Oh, it's Irish as fuck. I can't imagine a more Irish name than Moira or Patrick. Right. <laughs> Holy shit. Maybe Seamus. Yeah. Seamus is a bit more Irish, but that's about it. Or like just the word leprechaun. <laughs> he wants your help rescuing them, and then the four of you can get out of Rapture together. On your way to Neptune's Bounty... You round a corner, and on the wall, you can see the shadow of a woman bending over a baby carriage. As you approach, you see that it's a splicer, talking into the carriage, reaching her hand in lovingly, saying, You used to be so warm, but now you've gone cold. <gasps> Jesus Christ, that's chilling. So you kill the splicer. Right. <laughs> we'll just put her out of her misery. And there's a big-ass revolver handgun where a baby should go. 
This game's so fucking dark. I love it. Yeah, and Atlas explains that the invention of plasmids was kind of the cause of Rapture's downfall. Whoopsies. When you came down in the bathosphere, Rapture looked alive and well from the outside. But as you've gone around the inside, you see that it's falling apart and the people are not okay. Many have become these splicer creatures, people who have become addicted to Adam, and by default, plasmids. And they are willing to kill others in order to steal their Adam. And Adam is the substance that allows a person to use a plasmid. And there's also another substance called Eve that you will use that essentially acts as your plasmid's ammo throughout the game. Well, where there's Adam, there's usually Eve. Right, and that's the other, like, injectable. You're always going to inject yourself with Eve, but the rest of the game, if you're going to get a new power, you just drink the Adam. I appreciate the inconsistency there, because after the first one, he's like, I'm going to chug it. Yeah. (laughs) That I'm not going to do. So sip it? Yeah. You see more and more evidence of the collapse of this society with blood on walls and, like, posters hanging sideways. And the posters you're seeing are for a New Year's Eve 1959 masquerade ball. Fun! And this being 1960, so this just happened. Months ago. It's obvious that the official fall of Rapture occurred that night of the ball, as the splicers you keep encountering all over Rapture are wearing masquerade-style masks. And the masks never came off? Oh! No, everything went to shit that night and just, it stayed that way. And they're like, I am not packing a change of clothes for the apocalypse. We're just going to do this. And so this environmental storytelling is part of what makes Bioshock so special. Rapture is a very complete world with deep history and lore. And part of the way they tell the story is through audio logs scattered around the city where different citizens essentially leave diary entries. This was a very common Bioshock that we've had in other games. Yeah, this shows up in a lot of other games now. Bendy and the Ink Machine was a huge one. Oh, yeah. So it's not so different either from, like, influencers who vlog about their daily lives today. But it would be like leaving a tablet with just one vlog on it somewhere (laughs) for unlocked for anyone to find. But Ken Levine didn't want to rely on those entirely to fill out the story. Because it led to gamers just kind of standing around listening to them or getting them interrupted by instructions from Atlas Mm. and then having to start them all over. And that still happens in the game, but it was happening twice as much. Gotcha. So, about a year before launch, Ken Levine had the team redesign 90% of Rapture. Holy shit, just like the environmental levels and like the sets of it? They wanted to fill out the environment with the stuff they cut from the audio logs. Oh, clever. So now instead of being told about a New Year's Eve party, we see through the environment that it happened. With like posters and... Yeah, I feel like there's posters and invites and other pieces throughout the game that hint at the party, right? Yeah, and instead of hearing a story of someone killing a splicer, we find a dead one with a cash register clearly having been used to bash its head in. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, do the math. And in a later zone called Fort Frolic, two of the designers took it upon themselves to make sure that every single dead body you encounter, you'd be able to tell how and why that person died through the environmental clues. Oh, that's fucking cool. It was that level of detail that they were going for. I love that. That that actually makes me really want to go through and look at that level. Uh, yeah, somebody went to the uh, attention to make sure that it was like accurate, so you should. Hell yeah. And you eventually make your way to a catwalk overlooking a theater. On the stage is that little girl you saw before. And she's taking her big-ass needle and driving it into a dead splicer at her feet. As you cross the catwalk, Atlas says she's a little sister. A creature so transformed that they're not even human anymore. Ew. They drain the atom out of dead bodies. 
Splicers love the atom they suck out of them, so they go after the Little Sisters. And that's why the Little Sisters have those giant hulking creatures with them. The Big Daddy, as we heard those Splicers from before say. And a Big Daddy's only purpose is to keep a Little Sister safe. And originally, Little Sisters were just slug creatures Mm -hmm. called gatherers. (laughs) Just a straight up slug? It was just a straight up slug. And those slug creatures featured heavily in that original demo for the GameSpot article. Oh no. Were there big daddies still protecting the slugs? Yeah, the big daddies were protecting the slugs. That must have looked fucking crazy. Yeah, nobody understood what the relationship was between the slugs and the big daddies at all. I wonder if the slug was too alien looking. It was that too. It was very hard for people to kind of give a shit about the slugs on top of that. So they were like, you know what? Fuck you. It's going to be a tiny little girl. Yeah. You're going to fucking care. It was going to be just a tiny little girl. They experimented with little brothers. They just thought, "Uh, it's too much. Let's just stick with the little sisters. Yeah. It's a little more innocent to see a little girl with like a bow on her head and shit. Yeah, that was more the idea they thought too. So you drop down into a room on the same floor as the stage, and you can see it through a pane of bulletproof security glass. It's the kind with mesh between the panes of glass for, like, extra security. Oh, yeah. You'd see it at, like, a bank or a government building. It's basically so you can't touch the little sister for what's to come. Because a dumbass splicer tries to make his move on the little sister. And a big daddy jumps in to the rescue and uses his superior speed and gigantic drill for an arm to fuck that guy's day up. (laughs) Ultimately, drilling through him and shoving his body through the security glass, which should be impossible. (laughs) And the big daddy and the little sister walk off through a door and out of sight. Oh, it's so good. And Atlas is like, see, it's all fucked up. I love that Atlas is keeping such close tabs. He's like, see, with that motherfucker, dude fucked up. Yeah, there's some kind of like security can system that they never talk about that Atlas is clearly watching through. Right. And you make it to Neptune's bounty. And as you approach it, alarms start going off. Atlas says that Andrew Ryan himself is trying to stop you from getting to Neptune's bounty. Atlas asks you to kindly hurry up and get to his family before Andrew Ryan sinks this section of rapture to stop you from escaping. As you make your way towards his wife and kids, Andrew Ryan manages to trap you in a room as his face fills a TV screen that takes up most of a wall. It's very like Big Brother. He asks you who you work for, the KGB, the CIA, or some other group. Because rapture isn't a sunken ship to be scavenged. No matter. He sends a grip of splicers into the room after you as the TV displays. Please stand by. (laughs) Oh, that's so good. Atlas gets a door behind you open and you get inside an airlock, closing the door behind you. In order to get to his family, you need to get through a medical pavilion. And if you want to do that, you need to find the doctor who runs the pavilion to get his keys. A man named Dr. Steinman. This motherfucker. Oh, he is a tyrannical and maniacal doctor obsessed with beauty. As you approach a door, the world around you changes to almost black and white, and a staticky, translucent, out-of-focus scene plays out in front of you. A woman pounding on a door saying Dr. Steinman promised to make her pretty, and clearly nobody is answering her pounding. The ghostly scene fades away, and you enter the door she was pounding on. The lights flicker, and you can see posters of women on the wall with Dr. Steinman's signature across the posters in blood. That's so creepy. On the ground below, a portion of the Hippocratic Oath is also written in blood, (laughs) saying, above all, do no harm. Again, with his signature, like it was his idea. (laughs) 
An audio log goes on to explain the ghost scene, saying that it is a remnant from a time someone shed a ton of Adam, leaving a stain on the area, essentially. So, for example, the woman was in such hysterics, she basically sweat out the Adam inside of her, oh. leaving this ghost scene behind. Oh, that's so creepy. And so a few times you will encounter these like ghost scenes throughout the game. Some of them are very story relevant. Some of them are just kind of environmental. And it's just Adam floating in the ethos. Yeah, it's Adam just kind of causing it to stay there. Oh, that's so creepy. You eventually find a video playing an ad for Dr. Steinman's services. He asks that if we don't mix the sick and the healthy or the criminals with the law abiding, then why should the ugly be allowed to mix with the beautiful? Oh, no. With the advancements he's made mixing Adam with cosmetic surgery, beauty is no longer a goal. It's a moral obligation. Oh, yeah, I can see why he was attracted to the concept of rapture. Yeah. And I also see why he had to flee the land. <laughs> he's a crazy person. He's a full-on loon. Well, you come upon Dr. Steinman, and he throws some bombs at you. Just immediately bombs. Bombs. And it blocks your path, making life very difficult. Atlas says that elsewhere in the medical pavilion should be some plasmids that can help you, particularly one that allows for telekinesis, so you can throw the bombs back in Steinman's stupid face. Like Dr. Gordon Freeman. Yes. And there's also an incinerate plasmid in the area you're going to need later, so you might as well pick that up now, too. So we're just on a little fetch quest. Yeah, and one thing we talked about a lot last season in particular is tutorial sections in video games. Yeah. And every game needs one, and they're essential to setting the player up for success. Typically. Ken Levine hates tutorials in video games, and he vowed not to include one in Bioshock. Again, it's kind of his take on environmental storytelling that really drives the player into learning how the game operates. So the most hand-holding you get is the screen letting you know which button to push for an action the first time you use it. And that feels reasonable. That's the kind of tutorial I like. Like, just tell me once, let me practice it two or three times, and then leave me alone forever. Yeah, because after that, you are on your own. And the guns in this game are pretty straightforward first-person shooter weapons. The design alone tells you exactly what it's going to do, as there's not like five different machine guns or variations of shotguns. You're just going to upgrade the one you have along the way. And using it once will tell you everything you need to know about it. So just have the player use it in action. Plasmids, on the other hand, literally, <laughs> are original to this game series. And each one grants a different ability. The challenge for the team was figuring out how to explain the new plasmid without a tutorial. And the genius idea they came up with was through advertisements. It is the most iconic art piece that comes out of this game, and I love it so much. Oh, yeah, I've seen, like, the little guy from the ads tattooed on people, you know? Yeah. We've already seen ads throughout the game on our way to this point, cleverly getting the player used to the idea that raw capitalism was the true currency of Rapture. <laughs> As it is now. Go yeah. on. Advertising products and services everywhere a person goes. And every time you pick up a new plasmid, you watch this 15-second commercial for that plasmid. And they're silly, but they're informative and often show horrific depictions of people getting killed in various ways. <laughs> and if the plasmid has a special secondary use, such as like lighting an oil spill on fire, the video will also mention that as well. To continue with the example of the incinerate plasmid, you find it in a small office surrounded by security windows. After the advertisement ends, a bunch of splicers show up and start pounding on the windows of the office trying to get at you. 
Looking around, you see an oil spill on the ground, and it goes under the door and out to where the splicers are. You light the oil spill on fire and watch it travel to the other side of the office window and burn the splicers to death. That is the most satisfying kind of shit. I love that shit. Yeah, so that is their version of the tutorial. They just give you a chance to use it practically immediately and then send you on your way. They set you up for success. Also, while going through the medical pavilion, we can hear Andrew Ryan tell the citizens of Rapture that he will pay out 1,000 Adam to the first person who brings him this new intruder sent by the government to destroy Rapture. Like in John Wick. <laughs> There's a yes. bounty on him. Put a hit out. Yeah. Atlas says that anytime Andrew Ryan makes an announcement, he pumps chemical pheromones into the air <laughs> so that the people associate the happy feelings to hearing his orders. Oh, God. And that's how he gets them to do his bidding. After you collect all the guns and plasmids you need, you make your way to Dr. Steinman's operating room. He's working on a patient and then gets angry that she's not pretty enough and just starts stabbing her with his scalpel. Oh, it's so gross. And her cries and pain indicate she was still alive when he started stabbing. <clears throat> and he says that all of his creations lately are failures. He points up above him, and a light shines on a woman's body, splayed out like a frog having been dissected, <clears throat> saying that one was too fat. Then another light on another body above, saying, too tall. And a third body appears. And her problem was... She was too symmetrical. <laughs> Which, being symmetrical is the literal gauge for beauty standards. Right? That's fucking great. Then he sees you, calls you ugly. Naturally. And pulls a Tommy gun so the two of you engage in battle. I mean, would it have been better if he was like, you're decent looking, what's up, and then pulled a Tommy gun out? <laughs> that would be fucked up, right? Yeah. Oh, you're too good looking. Die. After you kill him, you get the key that you need to get to Atlas's family. Atlas says he's trying to find a back way in for himself while you make your way to the door to which you now have a key. And he says he'll meet you there. On your way, you pass by a pane of security glass and hear an explosion from the other side of it. Mm. A big daddy gets blasted through the window, hits the opposite wall, and slumps over dead. Oh, shit. You hear its little sister scream as the splicer that just managed to kill the big daddy approaches her. Atlas says this is your chance to get some Adam for yourself since the big daddy is dead. You see the splicer going after the little sister, and just as it lunges for her, it gets shot by a pistol from up above. Oh, shit. A woman shoots him dead from a balcony, and then she turns the gun on you, saying to stay away from the little sister. Her name is Dr. Tenenbaum, and Atlas tells you she created the little sisters. This is the coolest she is in the entire franchise. That's true. This is a nice moment, don't get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> Atlas yells at her, saying that you just need a little Adam to get by, and that the little sisters aren't even human anymore anyway. Are you really willing to sacrifice Atlas's family for an abomination? With the Adam the little girl carries, you can increase your plasmid powers in order to help you escape Rapture. And it's true. Throughout the game, you will use Adam as a currency to gain more powers and abilities as you progress through the game. And as you explore Rapture, you're going to encounter little sisters with their big daddies, and you're going to have to kill the big daddy in order to get the Atom from the little sister. Big daddies are passive until you attack one, though. So if you leave them alone, it'll leave you alone. But if you fight them, you're in for a fucking battle for your life. And they're so much bigger than you. Oh, yeah. And you're probably going to die a few times. Yeah. And fortunately, there are resurrection pods all over Rapture called Vita Chambers. 
and these are fully explained in Bioshock 2. So listen to that episode to get a better understanding of how they work in the world of Bioshock. Because they're not explained in Bioshock 1. At all. <laughs> it's just, it's good, right? Okay, bye. No, I love how they use it in Bioshock 2. I think it's quite brilliant. As you approach the little sister in front of you, Tenenbaum says that there's another way to take their atom that won't kill the little sisters. As currently, that's the only way you know to take it from them. She throws you a plasmid that she says will give you the ability to remove Adam from the little sister without killing it. Because it doesn't take all of the Adam, just enough to turn them back to a normal person instead of a little sister. Oh, so you're kind of doing two things with one action. Yeah, and throughout the rest of the game, when you approach a little sister, you're given the option to harvest or save the little sister. And harvest gains you more Adam in the moment, while saving gives you less. I'm going to tell you right now, every single playthrough, harvest every time. <laughs> you evil shit. I don't think I've ever saved a single little sister. I uh, harvested my first time, and I have saved every single time since then. Really? Yeah. You're a much better person than I am. Apparently. However, every so often, the little sisters show their thanks and leave you a gift of even more Adam, which basically balances out the amount you receive, whether you harvest or save them. I wouldn't know. Always kill them. Yeah, harvest does still end up with like a little bit more anyway. Regardless of what you choose, you still need to try and rescue Atlas's wife and son. But if you choose to save them, Atlas gives you shit for it like, your funeral. <laughs> Maybe he peer pressured me and that's why I'm like, team kill. <laughs> yes, that's probably the source of your bloodlust. <laughs> you finally make your way through the pavilion to a bathosphere that will take you to Neptune's bounty, where you can meet up with Atlas and his family. As you exit the bathosphere, you're greeted with a gruesome scene. A man strung up by ropes around his wrists and throat, covered in blood, and the word smuggler written above him. Oof. Atlas says that his wife and son are hiding in a submarine located in a place called Fontaine Fisheries, within the zone of Neptune's bounty. And that's how Rapture's kind of broken up. It's into zones in that each of them kind of act as their own little community, basically. And it's usually revolving around a themed trade, like medical shit in the previous zone or ocean shit in this one. Kind of like a Hunger Games where it's like, well, this area loves mining and this yeah. area loves fishes. <laughs> We're going into the fishes area. Yeah. A man named Peach Wilkins is blocking you from moving on to Fontaine Fisheries. I love a man named Peach. That's so cute. Yeah, it's a very rare name for a man. He's friends with Atlas, but requires a favor before letting you through because his boss Fontaine would not be happy with him letting you through. Mm. He wants a research camera that's located in the wharf manager's office. Atlas tells you that Fontaine has been dead for ages. <laughs> oh, no. But paranoid people think he's going to show back up, and he was a raging asshole when he was alive, so they're still scared of him. Atlas is like, fuck Fontaine. None of my homies like Fontaine. And you get the camera from the office while killing splicers and big daddies, rescuing or harvesting little sisters. The camera is one of the least popular mechanics in the game. I fucking hate the camera. <laughs> yeah, especially to you. But you can use it to take pictures of bad guys throughout the game, and it helps you level up your strengths. In one of the audio logs, we hear from a mother whose daughter had gone missing. Months later, she saw her daughter draining a dead body, accompanied by a big daddy. Oh, shit. She tried calling out to her, but the child looked right through her like she had never seen her before. Oh, that's horrifying. And just walked off with the big daddy. So yeah, the little sisters were all alive and real kids at one point. 
And they weren't farmed for this. They were snatched for they this. They were snatched up by Dr. Tenenbaum, and she used Adam to change them into the little sisters so they could harvest the Adam from dead bodies. <laughs> That's so creepy. You get back to Peach, and Atlas warns you that you still need to be careful around this shifty bastard. And he's right, because Peach accuses you of working for Fontaine, and that you were sent by him to make sure he was doing his job, and you fight him to his death. Oh, Jesus Christ. So he's just a little Looney Tune. A little bit, yeah. Atlas says he is in a room just outside the submarine bay. He can see his wife and son through a window, but can't get to them, and he's less than 100 yards away. He just needs your help to get through to them. The way you're coming in gets you straight into the submarine bay, and Atlas asks you to open the door to where he is so he can join you. Andrew Ryan comes over your radio saying that if you release that submarine, then you will learn what it means to be his enemy. Oh, shit. You find a control room and pull the switch that both opens the door for Atlas and releases the sub into the water. The door to the room you're in slams shut and we can hear stringed music start playing loud and hauntingly. Oh, that's so creepy. Atlas can be seen approaching the submarine, yelling to his wife to see if she'll answer. The lights start shutting off, and Andrew Ryan comes over your radio again and says, If only Atlas would look up to see you, you could warn him of what's to come. <gasps> Instead, you're just going to sit here and watch him die. Andrew Ryan releases a bunch of splicers into the room with Atlas. <laughs> And you break your way out of the office you're in to go help. Atlas says there's too many of them, and he has to fall back. He asks you to get his family out of the sub and to regroup with him. It's too dangerous to go that way now. You fight your way through the gangs of splicers as you make your way back to the submarine. You turn a corner, and you can see it straight ahead. As you approach it, the submarine explodes in a ball of fire. Oof. And Atlas screams out through the radio. Andrew Ryan realizes you're not a government agent. What kind of agent sneaks in and then sneaks out without doing anything? <laughs> so he sets out to uncover this mystery of who the fuck you are by either uncovering it or eliminating it. Atlas tells you to haul ass to a zone called Arcadia where the two of you can come up with a new plan of escape. And Atlas is overcome with anger and swears to tear out Andrew Ryan's heart for what he just did. Ugh. And this zone, Arcadia, is the public park of Rapture. It has all the plant life that provides the oxygen to Rapture. Andrew Ryan tells a story about how he once bought a forest before building Rapture. Bought a forest? Yeah, he was that kind of rich. <laughs> That's by an ecosystem rich. And a bunch of religious environmentalists tried to force him to donate a huge portion to build a public park because God planted those trees. So he burned the forest to the ground. <laughs> Sorry. I don't remember this at all, but I love it so much. Yeah, nobody was going to tell him what to do with the land that he owned. Wow. Down here, he built Arcadia so that he could be the God who planted the trees. <laughs> he was like, I did appreciate the concept. Through Arcadia is a bathysphere that will take you directly to Andrew Ryan's office, and he does not want you to make it there. So he locks down Arcadia, trapping you inside, and for the second time in his life, decides to destroy a forest that he owns. <laughs> Instead of fire, though, he releases a chemical into the air that will kill all of the plants in Arcadia, which is stupid because, again, oxygen. Yeah. But 
Nobody's going to tell Andrew Ryan what to do with the city that he owns. Jesus Christ. Full lunatic. I love it. Atlas says that the head botanist, a woman named Julie Langford, will likely want to save the trees, especially since she was the one who did the actual planting down here. Andrew Ryan just kind of paid for it. (laughs) As you go hunting for Julie, you occasionally can see signs on walls to elect Atlas to a government position. Oh, that's our friend. And some of them have been vandalized and words like liar are written across them. Well, with most politicians, there are going to be liars. And Atlas says that he hated what happened to Rapture. He moved his family here for a better life. And Andrew Ryan was just as bad, if not worse, than anyone on the surface. Well, yeah, that was, I feel like you had some fair warnings there, buddy. There must have been some literature that hinted at the, you know, philosophy of this guy. Yeah, believe people when they tell you who they are. Yes, So he decided to get into politics in an effort to change things for the better. And there were just those who didn't agree with him. And that's, you know, that's a very valiant effort. Uh, Good luck. Well, he welcomes you to draw your own conclusions, seeing as the people who opposed him, you've met, and they're all Adam-addicted lunatics. (laughs) And trying to kill you. Now, he doesn't give a shit what happens to Andrew Ryan and Rapture. He just wants to get the fuck out. Yeah. You find Julie Langford... And she does want to help. So she sends you on a couple fetch quests so she can create a chemical to counteract the one Andrew Ryan released called the Lazarus Vector. Ooh. After you complete the quests, you go to her office and can see her working through some security glass. Andrew Ryan's voice comes over a loudspeaker with a reminder for Julie. He reads from her contract that any and all chemicals in Arcadia belong exclusively to Ryan Corp. Misuse of company property will result in termination. And they don't mean you're getting fired. They mean, I'm going to zap you with some shit. Well, you watch her office fill with the gas as she chokes on it and dies oh. before ever finishing the Lazarus Vector. He doesn't even give her time to stop. He's like, I see what you're doing. I'm going to read you the warning and then immediately kill you. Yeah, he's going to justify it. Ugh. Fortunately... She left behind instructions on an audio log for no reason in particular. Yeah, just in case. You run around Arcadia collecting the rest of the ingredients for the Lazarus Vector, and as you do, the plant life around you is dying to the point of twigs and sticks. Andrew Ryan tells you that it's just a matter of time before the oxygen is gone, and you'll just fall asleep, never to wake up again. After you complete the Lazarus Vector, you release it into the same air vent Andrew Ryan used for his spray, and miraculously... The Lazarus Vector causes all of the dead, dying plants to spring back to life, full of foliage, like nothing ever happened. Is this how plants work? Not at all. I have one plant that has seen some rough days and bounced back pretty well, but yeah, that's not how plants work. It's underwater science magic, you know? What are you going (laughs) to do? Yeah, this isn't where I'm going to nitpick. You're right. Yeah. Atlas tells you now you can proceed to the bathosphere that will take you to Andrew Ryan's office. You stop off at a bathosphere transfer station in a zone called Fort Frolic. Oh, I love Fort Frolic. You need to get on a different bathosphere to get to Andrew Ryan's office. Atlas says that an artist, an absolute lunatic of a man named Sander Cohen has the key to that bathosphere. And being a lunatic, maybe he left it unlocked. Yeah, you know what? Just give it a try. You go to the next one, and just as you approach it, it submerges into the water below, and the lights go out. Oh, god damn it. 
along with your radio connection to Atlas. Oh no. Spotlights appear, and up from the water rises a giant masquerade mask with big bunny ears as classical music fills the hall. Statues can be seen descending from the ceiling, and a new voice comes over our comms. The lunatic artist himself, Sander Cohen, says he's tired of hearing Atlas and Andrew Ryan bicker back and forth over the radio. So he turned them both off for you, to give you a chance to enjoy an evening with Sander Cohen. <laughs> I love how this is presented so much of like, let's just take a break from the silly politics here and have ourselves a nice loungy night. Yeah, a little adventure with Sander Cohen is what we need. Entirely. And since you can't beat him, you might as well join him. And you head into Fort Frolic proper to find Sander Cohen. As you wander Fort Frolic, you see that Sander Cohen is an artist of many mediums. There are posters on the walls throughout for his many endeavors, such as a sculpture exhibit, his live one-man show titled Why Even Ask, <laughs> a movie night featuring his film Patrick and Moira, a musical, along with many other shows and exhibits. You enter a grand room with an ornate Phantom of the Opera staircase mm. and a stage with a red curtain closed. Sander directs you to another theater, where a man in a mask is at a piano playing a classical tune. Sander shouts out at the man for being out of tune and off-tempo, demanding he start over again and again. And suddenly, the piano explodes. Oh, shit! And the man dies. Well, he should have been on time. Sander tells you to take a picture of his body and to return to the room with the staircase. When you get back, the curtain on the stage is pulled back, and a bizarre statue of splicers made of paper mache holding four blank frames is now on the stage. He tells you to place the picture you took of the dead body into one of the frames. And it will place it in the frame you select using the exact picture you actually took. I like that. Which seems very simple today. Never happened back then. You were like, I'm creating the narrative. Yeah, it always picked the spot that you would go in and it would have its own like pre-rendered picture. Nice. But not this time. And Sander gives you a list of three others that he has beef with and wants you to kill and photograph them as well. They're all students of his that have betrayed him in some way. While hunting for one, we see an Adam ghost in a strip club. Ooh. And she says, oh, Mr. Ryan back at last. Let's go to the back. Scandal. You can follow the ghost to a back room. Before entering the door, we can hear the ghost woman saying, no, Mr. Ryan, please. It was Fontaine. I didn't do anything. And then she screams out. <gasps> When you open the door, you find the ghost's dead body on a bed, months old, and Ew. covered in blood. Yeah. Upon finding the poor woman's audio log, we find out Andrew Ryan and Dr. Tenenbaum were using her as a baby factory to <gasps> make little sisters. Ew! Oh, gross. That poor girl. And she sold that info to Fontaine. And Fontaine used that information against Andrew Ryan in an attempt to take him down. Holy shit. Fort Frolic is easily the most fun zone of the game. <laughs> despite that exact story. And despite that horror story we just went through. And hunting down the other artists is a really good time. Especially if you can kill them in a funny position for the camera. <laughs> Eventually, you get all the pictures and place them on the statue. And a triumphant musical cue sounds off. 
as the lights go out. At the top of the stage, a spotlight hits the top stair, where Sander Cohen himself descends the stairs in a golden masquerade mask with bunny ears, waving to an invisible crowd, thanking them for the recording of their applause. He's like anarchist Liberace. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Halfway down, he whips off the mask and approaches his statue. And this is the only NPC in the game that you can walk up to, and you have the choice of letting him live or killing him. Either way, Atlas finally comes back over our radio saying he's been trying to get in touch with you forever. Now, would you kindly get your ass over to the bathosphere so we can go after Andrew Ryan and kill the son of a bitch? I'm sorry, this super quirky dude asked me for help killing a couple people. He was just so weird I had to help. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he has experienced Sander Cohen plenty of times and would fully understand. Sander Cohen is the Andy Dick of Hollywood. Like, everyone <laughs> has a Sander Cohen story. Yeah. You've all been to a Sander Cohen party. You've all partied real hard with Sander Cohen. He gets it. Yeah. He throws the best parties. Oh, absolutely. The only way to get out of Rapture now is to kill Andrew Ryan and steal his genetic code, which controls the biometrics to the lockdown controls of Rapture and would allow for you to escape. You start making your way to his office, and obviously, he throws up every roadblock he can in your way. Right. He even has bodies of his enemies hanging on pillars outside his office, and he says there's a blank spot waiting for you on one of them. That's pretty punk rock, I'm not gonna lie. He says Rapture fell about a year ago, yes, but it's on the rebound. It's getting better, though. Yeah, the shops are reopening, the schools are back in session, and the children are happy. It's like towards the back part of the pandemic where they're like, see, you can go outside again. <laughs> yeah, but you've seen zero shops. Right. <laughs> and the only children are the horrifying little sisters. Yeah, who are barely human. And nothing Andrew Ryan is telling you is even remotely true based on everything you've seen. I like that he's lying to your face and you're like, no, dude, I've been in here for hours. I can see it's not what you say. Yeah. He says that when Rapture is reborn, the streets will be paved with the tombstones of those who doubted him. Gross. Besides, what have you ever accomplished? Because he built a city underwater. Good luck besting a guy who did that. What a brat. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just constant, nonstop taunting. He's that vine of the little boy that's like, you're disrespecting a future U.S. officer. Yeah. You know, that's the energy I'm getting from Same him. energy, yeah. yeah. I've got the power of God and anime on my side. <laughs> I love that Andrew Ryan's a fucking dork. I never thought about it like this in co this kind of context, especially as you discuss kind of the Anne Ryan of it all and like what stories we're taking and how that's perceived from people over 20, and, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, in one of the taunts, he brings up an interesting point. A man building a city under the sea is a marvel of human ability. A man surviving a plane crash that landed directly on top of that city? Well, that's a miracle. But only the religious believe in miracles. Andrew Ryan is a man of science, which leaves only one possibility. You crash-landed here on purpose. Ooh. You fight off Andrew Ryan's roadblocks and manage to cobble together an EMP device... Hell yeah. ...that will shut down all of the defenses. After setting it off, Andrew Ryan panics and decides that if he dies, his city dies with him. And he sets off a self-destruct in the city's central power core. Oh, shit. Atlas tells you the shutdown is in Andrew Ryan's office 
and you need to get in there and stop the self-destruct by any means necessary. You find an air vent to help you sneak around and drop down into a room. There's a wall with papers all over it, like a conspiracy theory wall. Of oh, the Pepe Silva wall? Yeah. There's also pictures of Andrew Ryan, Dr. Tenenbaum, Fontaine, and a few others, as well as a blank photo with a big question mark on it. Written over all of this in thick, dark red ink, probably blood. <laughs> the probably blood is so good. Are the words, would you kindly? Upon further inspection, you can also find the picture you have in your wallet of you and your parents, as well as screen grabs from security footage of you in different parts of Rapture. An audio log is nearby, and it features a man named Dr. Suchong. He's talking to a young boy about a puppy. The boy is excited and happy playing with the puppy. Then Dr. Suchong tells the little boy to break the puppy's neck. And the boy is confused, and he refuses to do it. He tells him again, and again the boy refuses. The third time that he tells the boy to break the puppy's neck, he adds the words, Would you kindly? The boy still says no, but he's crying very hard. We hear Dr. Suchong say, Good, good, as the puppy yelps out in pain, <gasps> and then goes silent as the audio log ends. Ugh. Another nearby audio log, also from Dr. Suchong, describes the raising of a future big daddy. At just one year old, it weighs 58 pounds. Holy shit! And has the strength of a fit-as-fuck 19-year-old. Jesus. He's not sure if he's a fan of creating these people. <laughs> he's like, this is an abomination, but okay. But it's working. But it's working, yeah. You exit this back room you fell into and come upon a window to Andrew Ryan's office. He's on the other side in a suit, playing some golf on a little putting green on the floor. Just rich people shit. He asks you what separates a man from a slave. And he answers that a man chooses, a slave obeys. The memories in your head, they're not yours. The things you remember, your hometown, your parents, the plane crash. Can you be sure any of it was real? As he says each of these things, you see a flash of that image fill the screen. Ugh. Was there really a family? And you see a flash of a baby strapped to wires surrounded by doctors. Did the plane crash or was it hijacked? Hmm. Another flash. And we see the package we had on the plane. It's open and inside is a handgun. Oh. And we can see the full note now. And the wait until part is coordinates as opposed to a date or time. Oh, that's so good. Was the plane actually taken down by a man designed to live out a seemingly normal life only to be activated by a simple phrase? Which of you was sent to kill him? A man or a slave? Are you choosing this or are you obeying? <coughs> he opens the door dividing the two of you and invites you in. We are then put into one of the five cutscenes of the game, which honestly surprised me this playthrough because I really feel like we all remember Bioshock as not having cutscenes. Yeah. But it actually has quite a few. <laughs> and it plays out in first person. We just have zero control of the character. 
As you enter his office, he says, stop, would you kindly? And you do. He asks if this phrase is familiar to you. At that, you flash back to your first plasmid injection and hear Atlas's voice say, would you kindly? And then you flash through every command and request Atlas had for you, each accompanied by the phrase, would you kindly? Culminating in him saying, would you kindly head to Ryan's office and kill the son of a bitch? <laughs> As the conspiracy theory wall fills our field of view. We're back with Andrew Ryan, no longer flashing through our memories. He says, sit, would you kindly? Stand, would you kindly? And you follow his commands. Run, stop, turn around, all of which you do. He hands you his golf club and tells you to kill, reminding you that a man chooses and a slave obeys. And as a sign of who you are, you beat Andrew Ryan to death with a golf club. Ah, oh, it's so good. Breaking the metal off in the side of his skull. Ooh! Even Abby couldn't do that. Right? Abby wasn't able to do that. And I didn't even realize that was a bio shot at the time. I was like, I had completely forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the biggest bio shot in that whole fucking game. Yeah. I don't know a single person who played through this section whose mind wasn't fucking broken by it. Oh, my God. The first time it happens... It is horrifying because you're like, oh, you've been playing me. I thought I was playing you. Oh, it throws into question your every action as you played through it up until this point. Yeah, it's horrifying. Yeah, especially if your choice was to harvest the little sisters. <laughs> yeah. Because he didn't would you kindly you with that choice. That's all on you. Oh, yeah, that's who I am as a person. And as a gamer, you're used to trusting your guide. Right. I don't anymore because of this game. This and Undertale really ruined trusting anyone. Yeah. Period. In Be life. Because it's supposed to be your Obi-Wan, your Gandalf, your Morpheus. Your guy in the chair. You don't get betrayed by the one who taught you everything. That doesn't happen. It's usually like a student betrays a master, never the other way around. Right. <laughs> but here we realize that we really are slaves as gamers. Ugh. We blindly do what we're told in a video game. And we don't think of the logic or reasoning behind it because we inherently trust that we're being told the truth. Right. And would you kindly work so fucking well because the character of Atlas is so friendly and old-fashioned, it just feels natural for him to say it, and you never in a billion years see this coming. Yeah, you're like, oh, he's charmingly Irish. Moira and Patrick are gone. Da, 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 da. Like, <laughs> you're like, yeah, of course, that's just how he talks. No, it was a code. And the thing that surprised me the most on this playthrough is that myself, and I think most people remember this as being a big twist shock ending to the game. Yeah. Shockingly, we're only about 65% through the game. That blows my fucking mind. I feel like it's this and then the final moment and then you're done no we are just barely past the halfway point when this revelation occurs holy shit i haven't played this in like a year or two so this is all renewed news for me yeah andrew ryan is just the first lunatic ceo we had to overcome <laughs> and now we have a whole new problem our guide and now former friend atlas now the would you kindly twist comes so relatively early in the game because Ken Levine didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. <laughs> it is literally one of the most iconic gaming moments of all time. He genuinely thought it would be a fun little meta joke for the player. Oh, no. It changed 
all of gaming. Yeah, it was actually the programmers making the game. They saw how powerful this moment could be, and they created the flashes and the montage of Atlas saying it throughout the game. And it wasn't until Ken Levine saw it for the first time that he realized he had made a profound and outstanding twist. <laughs> He's like, oh shit, that was cool. I appreciate that Ken Levine can like really hone in on things like, here's what a door handle looks like at 30 Rock, and then be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, this shit's fine, my M. Night Shyamalan ass twist. I'm gonna move on now. <laughs> yeah, he really thought that just the reveal Atlas was the bad guy would be the mind fuck. No, it's an entire commentary on gaming and trusting a narrative <laughs> in general that shaped an entire generation and a half so far of games. Yeah. The fuck? The other shocking thing, it was also not the original trigger phrase. Really? For the first year of development, the trigger phrase was Excelsior. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most upsetting shit you've ever said on the show. Um, Wait, so give me some lines right now. Oh, it would just be, will you go over there and kill the son of a bitch? Excelsior! They would just, like, punctuate with it. Yeah, he was punctuating with it. That's fucking crazy. And finally, someone said, this is way too obvious, as nobody but fucking Stan Lee said that word. I think it's trademarked for Stan Lee, yeah. too. Like, <laughs> they might have to pay a licensing fee if they use that as, like, a trigger phrase or a catchphrase or something to that effect. Well, this was a relief to Ken Levine, because he thought everyone was hating the idea of a trigger phrase for a whole year. Oh. When everyone really just hated the phrase he chose. They're like, no, no, concept's great. You picked the stupidest fucking word on earth. <laughs> so after some shopping around, Would You Kindly was chosen as it was most likely to slip by players and sound most natural. Did you see that Black Mirror episode where the guy gets trapped in a game testing simulation? Yeah. Yeah, where uh, they drop Would You Kindly in the episode. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Well, as Andrew Ryan lays there dead. Atlas comes over the radio and says, Now, would you kindly get Ryan's genetic code so we can get out of here? Ah, uh, and you know you're being used. And honestly, even without the trigger phrase, it's the only way out of Rapture as it's still set to explode. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's still that problem. And you do your thing and shut down the self-destruct. Atlas thanks you, but then breaks into a maniacal laugh. Oh. Dropping the Irish accent entirely. He says, Atlas is just a character, one of his many aliases. His real name is Frank Fontaine. Dun, dun, dun. A man you were told died months ago. Who ran the fishery? Atlas originally was played by actor Greg Baldwin, and he had an American Southern drawl like Benoit Blanc. Oh, I love that. But people immediately didn't trust him and thought he was up to something. <laughs> commentary there about Southerners that I'm not going to get into, but I will say I think is very funny. So with the game complete and finished, they had to fire Greg Baldwin <gasps> through no fault of his own. They recast the character with Irish actor Carl Hanover and had him re-record the entire game. Holy shit. And changing him to Irish made people trust him more naturally. There's something about an Irish accent that is just trustworthy. It's just so charming. But then a British team member said the new Atlas actor sounded like a fake Irish accent, even though it wasn't. Carl Hanover was just from a part of Ireland with a different accent than, like, Dublin. Oh, okay. So they did a focus group test in Ireland, 
and the Irish players were so excited to finally hear a real Irish accent that wasn't <laughs> the one you always hear. Oh. And Greg Baldwin, the original actor, is still in the game as Frank Fontaine. Oh. As he plays the character from here out. Oh, I love that. Okay, so he still got his bag. Like, he still got his credit. They just scrapped half his work. Yeah, and he still got paid. Good. I think that's very funny that some people were like, this sounds fake Irish. And the dude's like, I'm legitimately an Irish person. (laughs) Oh, that's so funny. And in later appearances of the character in future games, Carl Hanover plays both Atlas and Frank Fontaine. Oh, good for him. So Greg Baldwin did lose the part ultimately in the end, but, you know, he still shared it in the first game. Yeah, it happens, buddy. Now, you did shut off the self-destruct, but you also just gave Fontaine... Full control over all of Rapture. Oh, god damn it. And now he can control it the way he always wanted to. And he is going to begin his reign by eliminating you. I think it's kind of funny that he's like, I'm back to my old personality. Like, he said he's a master of disguise. Like in the movie, (laughs) Master of Disguise. (laughs) So you think he'd maybe be like, I'm Steve. Steve's a great guy. Let me out of Rapture, you know, <laughs> yeah. like try to start a union that way or some shit. But he's just like, fuck it. We're going with personality zero. Let's go. Yeah. So he sets off an alarm and sends security drones after you. He loves drones. You run out of the room and a rescued little sister is on the other side. She gestures for you to follow her. She ducks into an air duct and you crawl in after her. And you can see her up ahead and she motions to you again. But the floor beneath you gives way, and you fall, getting knocked out in the process. You weigh a lot more than the little sisters do. You were a fully grown man. (laughs) Right, but you were desperate. Yeah. You wake up in a room with Dr. Tenenbaum's voice, welcoming you to your real hometown. The place where you were born and raised, and then sent topside to live out a normal life. Only to be called back by Fontaine using your trigger phrase so you could help him overthrow Andrew Ryan. Holy shit. She and Dr. Su Chong basically designed your brain when you were a child. Ugh. Placing the trigger phrase in your head with Adam. She has managed now to deactivate the trigger phrase, making it meaningless to you. Hell yeah. But there were other things they put in your head that you don't know about, but Fontaine does, as Dr. Su Chong taught him in order to control you. He can mess with you in ways... Even she's not sure of yet. She tells you that Dr. Suchong likely has notes in his apartment explaining how to fully remove all programming from your head and sends you to collect that information. As you venture out, Fontaine chimes in on the radio and says, Now that I have no use for you, would you kindly go get stepped on by a big daddy? Oh. You just keep doing your thing, ignoring him now, and he realizes Tenenbaum must have removed that part of your conditioning. Haha, <laughs> fuck you. No worries. That's why he has Code Yellow. At that phrase, your vision goes blurry. At Code Yellow? Oof. And you double over coughing. Oh, shit. Your health bar's max health lowers itself. Mm. As Fontaine explains that he just told your heart to stop working. <gasps> Holy shit. But the heart's stubborn, so it'll take some time, but eventually it will just give out entirely. As you head to Dr. Su Chong's office, your heart will occasionally stop for a moment, mm. further lowering your max health. And Tenenbaum assures you that once you have the cure from Su Chong's office, you'll be back to normal. In Su Chong's home office, 
you find the cure to code yellow and take it. And unfortunately, it's like the COVID vaccine. You have to get a booster to get the full effect. <laughs> you gotta break it up into a couple doses. You also find an audio log from Su Chong calling Fontaine a little bitch who only thinks he's powerful. <laughs> but really, he just rides the shoulders of actual great men. He says that Fontaine secretly commissioned a full cure for the mind control in the unlikely event that he gets brainwashed someday. Because Fontaine knows, never use a weapon unless you're ready to have it used on you. Yeah, Sujan's complaining, but this is just good planning. Yeah, he wanted to make sure that there would be a way out. Tenenbaum is stoked because she found this secret cure a long time ago and didn't know what it was. And she stole a sample of it. So she guides you back to her apartment and you find it ransacked. Oh no. She says that sucks because someone found the sample and took it. Only place left is Su Chong's office. Tenenbaum talks to you much like Atlas did, only this time not using would you kindly to get you to do shit. She just appeals to your sensitive side, talking about the little sisters you've saved, or making you feel guilty for the ones you've harvested. Yes. She also explains that while she designed the little sister program, she never knew it would cause the fall of rapture. <laughs> well, you know, this world wasn't built with consequences at the forefront of everything, you know? Never, yeah. Ever since she realized how lost the little sisters become, she backed out of the program and has dedicated her life to rehabilitating little sisters back into normal people. She's the culty programmer. Yeah, right? <laughs> there it, it is. It lived on. <laughs> okay. You eventually find the cure and take it. Your max health returns to normal levels, but there are side effects. You'll need one more booster of the cure. And in the meantime, you have zero control over which plasmid you have equipped. Oh, you get on, like, mystery hero mode for your plasmid? <laughs> yeah, right? That's sick. By now, you should have 10 or 11 to choose from, and you can typically equip four at a time. The side effects just give you a random plasmid for a couple minutes at a time. Hmm. And honestly, I would play the whole game with this if they let me. On random mode? Yeah, I really enjoyed not having control. It kind of forced me to make creative decisions. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And while searching for more cure, you wind up in an office with a big table in the middle. On that table is a mutilated corpse of a man Ugh. with a detached big daddy drill buried into its back. <laughs> There's an audio log nearby. In it, Dr. Suchong is complaining that he can't get the big daddies to bond with the little sister. They're so passive around one another. Even if a splicer approaches, they do nothing. A little sister starts tugging at Dr. Sushong's sleeve in the background, and he gets angry at her for interrupting and smacks her across the face. Oh, shit. On the log, we hear the low growl of a big daddy, and Dr. Sushong saying, wait, what are you doing? As the sound of a drill firing up is heard, <laughs> and Dr. Sushong screams his last sounds, revealing the body on the table to be his. Hell yeah, fuck you. You find the final dose of the cure and are back to your normal self again, able to control your plasmids and health. Tenenbaum tells you to head to a place called Point Prometheus to finish this bullshit once and for all. You can always tell when a bad guy is scared because that's when they start offering things to you. <laughs> and it's usually power if you agree to join their side. They're in the negotiation stage. Yeah, and Fontaine's no different. He offers you the chance to take a submarine topside with a bunch of Adam where the two of you can rule whole countries, not just an underwater city. Oh no, you'd be a god up top. 
Being a silent protagonist, you don't accept his offer. And when you find him, he slams the door shut and locks it. Tenenbaum says there's only one way to get that door open, and it's for a little sister to do it. Problem being, little sisters only trust big daddies. And you're not a big daddy. Yet. Yet. Hell yeah, I remember this. Tenenbaum says that if you can put together and wear a big daddy outfit, including their smell, you can get a little sister to help you open the door to get to Fontaine. So you run around and collect pieces of Big Daddy's suit, all with Fontaine heckling you and Tenenbaum encouraging you. And once you are a Big Daddy, you have to summon a little sister by pounding on the outside of the bronze vents that they use to get around the city. Anyone who played Bioshock 2 will recognize the next round of combat as it's the basis for three quarters of Bioshock 2's <laughs> gameplay. Spoilers. The little sisters don't understand you need a specific door open, so you just kind of have to follow her until she reaches it. In the meantime, she's stopping off at dead bodies, draining their atom, all the while splicers are attacking her, and your job is to keep the little sisters safe from harm, which is difficult if you're trying to keep every single little sister alive. Right. While following the little sister, Fontaine mocks you for falling for the whole fake family bit, poor Moira and wee baby Patrick. Oh, wee baby Patrick. If you were paying close attention earlier, mm -hmm. you heard me mention a Sander Cohen film titled Patrick and Moira, The Musical. <sighs> this is my favorite Easter egg in the entire game. It's a really good one, right? I think I, when you said you were going to do this, I was like, oh, you have to call out the Patrick and Moira <laughs> bit. It's the coolest fucking thing. I found out about it late in life, and it brings me so much joy that you get a poster of the fake names in your face, as if to say... He just looked around like fucking usual suspects yeah. and pulled names off of the wall and said, yeah, it's uh, Moira and Patrick. Okay, bye. <laughs> so fucking good. Well, finally, the little sister gets to the door you need to go through and opens it for you. She heads back into her hidey hole, and as she does, she gives you her big-ass needle. Tenemom tells you to grab it. You're going to need it to drain Fontaine of all his atom if you're going to defeat him because he has spent every minute since revealing himself to you injecting himself with more and more atom. <laughs> Just juicing. Making him super strong and powerful. You get to the point of no return elevator and head into Fontaine's office. He comes of the radio saying he remembers the day he sent you topside when you were just two years old. The sleeper agent's son he never had. Oh. Putting you down will be like putting down a beloved pet. Sad, but necessary. Fuck you. We enter his office and it's a cavernous space with a 40-foot-high glass ceiling and windows that scale the whole length of the walls. Gorgeous. Fontaine is barely human any longer. He's just fully nude with Ken doll junk between his legs. <laughs> and he, he's like he's like a silvery blue color, right? Yeah. Or should I say Ken Levine doll? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, his skin is like a steel-colored gray, mm. and he stands nine feet tall. And is completely hairless. Like a little Dr. Manhattan about it. Yeah, like Dr. Manhattan from The Watchmen. But with no dong. No dong at all. The plasmids ate his dong. Yeah. <laughs> kind of sucks. Yeah, it's kind of like a metaphor for steroids. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work. Why bother putting it in there? Well, for a final boss, he's pretty standard. Yeah. Yeah, you wear him down until you can shove your needle into him and drain his powers. Mm -hmm. And the play area, if I recall correctly, it's like, it's not too complex. It's no. kind of just an open arena. 
pretty open arena, some walls to hide behind. Yeah, I, th- I feel like there's like might be a pillar or two. Yeah. But otherwise, it's like a pretty reasonable fighting space. And I don't want to like say he's easy, but like I also beat him on the hardest difficulty this last playthrough in one try. Nice. So this is the point on my first run through that you came home from your like eight, nine hour shift of work. You're like, all right, made some people happy, had a great day at work. Heading home to my loving wife, where I'm a full goblin, <laughs> wrapped in blankets, again, surrounded by candy wrappers, like, sparkling water cans going, I'm enraptured, <laughs> plasmids, and you're like, holy shit, are you okay? And I was like, no. And I was in this battle, and you were like, you looked at it, you looked at me, and then you did a double take at the screen, and you went, holy shit. <laughs> yeah, you're at the end. And I was like, I know, I have to kill Fontaine. And you did. I did. And you know what's funny is actually Ken Levine doesn't care for the final boss battle. Really? He doesn't really care for any boss battle he's ever made. Really? Interesting. Yeah, he admits that it is his weakness in game making. And in those cases, he kind of just turns to his team to help out. I appreciate that he doesn't have the ego to say, no, no, it's right because I did it. He has the understanding and humility to be like, this is not my strong suit. I'm going to tap in people who give a shit about this. I'm going to work on some crazy ass stories. Like I do appreciate him as a leader more and more, the more you're telling me about Ken Levine. Yeah. That's why I was saying before, like when we started, like I haven't really heard anything bad and I don't have any reason to think of it. Yeah. I just, the fact that he can admit his weakness says a lot. Very much so. Right. Well, I just really hope that he changes for his next game. Judas. Oh, Judas looks so fucking good. Looks incredible. Anyway, so Fontaine is still just three stages, and then he's dead. Groundbreaking. <laughs> On the final stab, we get taken into another first-person cutscene as Fontaine backhands you across the room, ah! and you land in a pile. He says, he created you. He programmed you. He sent you away and called you back. Everything you believe about life, he created for you and tattooed it inside your head. Ugh. He's your god and your father. And if that's not family, then he doesn't know what is. Motherfucker. It does sound a little like when your mom gets mad and goes, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. Oh, it's fully that, right? He's being a bratty parent. And that's not family. So he really doesn't know what one is. Yeah. He comes up to you while you lay there, sparkling with plasmid energy, (laughs) ready to finish you off. Behind him, you see a team of little sisters start coming out of holes in the wall. They climb up him and just start stabbing the fuck out of him with their big-ass needles. Let's go, girls. Just draining him of his remaining atom while yelling, Kill it! As Fontaine stops moving. (laughs) Kill it! (laughs) Yeah, and the sisters just keep on stabbing. They do not recognize him as a human. They're like, whatever the fuck that is, we are gonna murder it, ladies. Let's go. He didn't recognize them as humans, so fuck him. (laughs) It, it balanced. It, it comes all the way around. So really, this is the little sisters as the hero of the game, not you. Right. Yeah, they get the final blow. Hell yeah. The scene fades, and we get a full cinematic cutscene with Tenenbaum's voiceover. She says that the little sisters offered you the literal key to the city of Rapture, and you turned it down, and instead elected to save the little sisters and take them all topside. We see the rescued children emerge from the submarine, no longer looking dead and without glowing eyes. We see you reach your hand out to help one out, and the scene flashes to an older girl's hand, 
accepting a diploma, then a wedding ring being placed on their ring finger. Another flash, and the woman is holding the hand of a child. Mm. Then finally, an old man's hand is seen, with IVs going into his veins. We see a chain-link wrist tattoo on the old hand that we've been staring at the entire game, as it was our own wrist. Multiple adult woman hands reach out to hold the old man's hand as it goes limp. And Tenenbaum says that you gave them the one thing they always deserved. A family. And the scene fades to black. Mm. Of course, that's only if you saved all the little sisters. Yeah, that's not the ending I ever got any time I've ever played this game. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, if you harvest even one, <laughs> you get a much darker ending. It's almost like Undertale. <laughs> and this was the only time 2K really stepped in and put their foot down. They wanted two different endings. Really? They wanted your choices to matter. They wanted added replay value. Okay. <laughs> I went full philosophy on there. Like, oh, they wanted to put emphasis on your choices to combat the slave man choice obey thing. Oh, that's brilliant. No, they wanted a replay. I get you. Yeah, well, Ken was trying to argue that having a choice goes against the whole point of the game. Yeah, it's the antithesis of the game. But the 2K execs argued kind of what you just said in that you've taken all choice away from the player. You need to give them some, just even if it's a little bit. Meet me in the middle here. Yeah, and he found it kind of hard to argue that after that. And he says that ultimately it was the right choice. I believe so, too, because it also just adds to the lore, the philosophy, and the cult value of this game of your choices are being told, one, that they don't matter, and two, that they absolutely fucking matter. And that means a lot. It's really exciting. Yeah, and he prefers the happy ending. I think that is the canon ending. Anyway, here's the sad one. Yeah, the one that I get every time. The Little Sisters still help you kill Fontaine, but the final cutscene is very different. If you killed every single one, Tenenbaum speaks in a very angry tone. <laughs> and if you did any combination of saving and harvesting, even if it's just one off, she speaks more melancholy than angry, but the words and scene are exactly the same. Tenenbaum says the sisters offered you everything, and you gave them brutality in return. Yeah. You forcefully grab a little sister and pull her towards you as she looks at you in fear. The scene transition, and there's a large submarine on the surface of the water. It's at the base of the lighthouse from the start of the game, and they're digging through the wreckage from the plane crash. Suddenly, a bathysphere pops up out of the water. Tenenbaum says that, even with all of Rapture under your control, after a time, it still wasn't enough for you. As she says this, two dozen more bathyspheres rise up out of the water. <laughs> A door to one of them flies off, and a hook-handed splicer comes flying out of it. It lands on the submarine and kills the men searching the wreckage. Yeah! We see it run down the hull of the sub, and the camera stops over a nuclear bomb being carried by the submarine, implying very dark times are on the horizon. The scene fades to black. Ugh. The end. It's such a good game. And that was Bioshock. Hell yeah, it was. That was so much fun.
oh my god, that game is just so fucking groundbreaking and so good and holds up today. This was the first time I'd played it probably in 12 years. Really? Yeah, I hadn't played this game in so long and I didn't realize that it had been that long. It was so fucking fun. Good. Good for you. Oh, I'm so happy with it. Yeah. And I'm happy we were able to give it the justice that it deserved with this episode. That's one of the games we have a hard copy of on Switch. So when we go to airports, we can have a game we can play without Wi-Fi and shit like that. Yeah. Ugh, it's a perfect game. That's like a staple in the catalog. It really is. And uh, thank you so much for coming along on that journey. If this was your first episode, that's what we do on this show. Check out some other games. We get weird with it. We do. We try to. Oh, this was so much fun. I love the Patrick and Moira twists. Almost as much as the Would You Kindly twist. Right? It's so great. So, yes, we do operate on a season schedule here at the other castle. So we just finished up our season six uh, just a couple months ago. We've got season seven, which we are happy to announce starts on August 30th. So we'll start season seven then. So please make sure that you are subscribed to us. So that way you get reminded when we drop. And then also, if you want to see us in the meantime. Ooh. We do have a Twitch channel as well now. Yeah, every Friday at 8.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, we are going to be running through games we've mostly covered on the show. We are wrapped on Ghost of Tsushima. If you want to watch that, that's on our Twitch and on our YouTube the next day. We've got Goose Game in there, and we've got more stuff coming up. We actually decide on what games to do through our Discord and polls on our Instagram. So if you also want to see us do something specific, let us know. Yeah, and you can find links to our Discord and our Instagram at our website, theothercastlepodcast.com. That's theothercastlepodcast.com. That's also linked in the show notes of this episode. Yeah, and there you can sign up for our newsletter, which comes out every month as well. We have merchandise, which we're going to do a new round of merchandise very soon. Woohoo! And of course, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon. So we want to talk about our Patreon real quick in that we are going to fully and completely change what it is and how it works We had separate tiers. We had all sorts of goodies and stuff, but we're going to just simplify it down. We're going to give you monthly episodes still. Every single month, new episodes will air that are outside of the season. They will consist of different things like side quests, DLCs, things like that. And we're only going to charge $2. That's it. That's it. $2 to join our Patreon. Come on, join us, have fun with us. It'll automatically sign you up for the newsletter, automatically get you in the Discord as well. But those are both things that you can just sign up for whenever you like. Yeah, and you will have access to our entire back catalog, including some episodes that are not publicly available anymore. And of course, those exclusive Patreon only episodes. So if you just you're feeling a craving or if you want to binge it, all access, $2 and we appreciate you. Yes, we've done great episodes on games like Tetris over there. We've done the Iki Island DLC to Ghost of Tsushima. And you've got Pokemon Go coming up. <laughs> Yes, I do. I fucking love Pokemon Go. I'm still playing. It started in 2016. I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. And it's going to be our first full and complete mobile game. Yeah, we had some games that have been on iOS and Android, but this one's just mobile, which is kind of fun. Cause we're, there's, there's a kind of a general bingo card in my head where we try to hit every kind of game. You know, mobile was a tricky one to get. What am I going to do? Be like, angry birds. Them birds angry. Like, <laughs> right. No, I can't do it. I'm not going to unravel the Merge Mansion mystery that for some reason has Pedro Pascal in it now. <laughs> He's canonical to that mobile game as the detective. You and I will talk about this offline. We're going to have to, yeah. Because it's fucking crazy. And he's 
so stupidly handsome. <laughs> but anyway, we are so excited. You know, Patreon's a really great outlet for us to do some more experimental things and like give you guys updates and more behind the scenes of other episodes. We always do a season wrap up with, you know, sometimes we address things that have come up in the um actually channel of the Discord, yep. <laughs> you know, come up with other things fan theories that we want to discuss that just didn't make it to the full episode. Sometimes these got real long. Yeah. But we are having so much fun and we are having so much fun on the Discord. We're having so much fun on Twitch. It's just a good time. So if you want to activate in the community a little bit, hang out with us, get more out of what you want out of this show, it's a great place to do it. Yeah, and just I want to say thank you to all of the patrons that we've had already that did do the tier system that we started with. I want to start again with Molly Mock Shepard and Krisha for just joining us, Woo-hoo! as well as Jackie, Jacob, Ellen, Zakasi, Steamed Hams, <laughs> Jake, Melanie, Nathan, and our first ever patron, Tijan. Woohoo! Thank you all so very much. It is greatly appreciated, and we hope you keep hanging out with us at a lower price tier. I feel like that's better, right, guys? Yeah, we want to <laughs> get more of you able to be involved with it, and that'll keep you with episodes, like I said, during the off-seasons. And we still air episodes during this season as well. Yes, and I'm so excited for Season 7. I have a bunch of games that I'm really excited for. One is one that I've loved for decades. Yes. And I've been playing it nonstop, and the music's stuck in my head right now. So <laughs> I need to go play it a little bit more just to get the music stuck out of my head. But thank you so much for taking us on such an incredible journey to Rapture, my second home. Yes, and you know we have Bioshock 2 already available. You can go listen to that right now. And if you were playing Bioshot with us, I'm sorry and good luck. But if you'd like a Bioshot piece of merch, that is on our merch store on our website, theothercastlepodcast.com. That's theothercastlepodcast.com. This is a fun one. I'm excited for season seven. I am too. I'm excited to come back. All right, Goombas, thank you so much for going on that journey with us. And this is Tom and Andrea reminding you. Would you kindly hit subscribe so you get episode notifications? (laughs) And don't skip the cutscenes. Bye.